Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Welcome to the Rico. It's the first official Rico Bronia in which we have now accepted our fate that Jacob deGrom is not a Met. He will not grow old with us. He will now pitch for the Texas Rangers. I've had a few days to digest it, uh, do some reading, see what all the baseball insiders have had to say. And here's kind of what I've come up with. Not I've come up with, but basically what I've put together through all of this. And that is DeGrom really didn't want to come back. And the Mets really didn't want Jake back at that price for those amount of years. Uh, Would they have taken him back on a big money two-year deal? Yes, they clearly offered that. Would they have even taken him back on a big money three-year deal? Yes, they offered that. Even if DeGrom really wanted to remain a Met, but you know, it was going to take the most money in years, which I think we'd all understand, and gave the Mets a day to match the Texas offer, they were never going to match the Texas offer. They weren't going to do it. So it's one of those things where maybe I'm telling myself this. Maybe I'm trying to accept it this way. But he didn't want us, and I don't think for the contract he got, we wanted him. And that sucks. Well, let's just be honest. That sucks. Uh, that doesn't make me feel much better. The fact that DeGrom preferred to be away, which we had heard rumblings about for weeks and months and months. And it doesn't make me feel better that the Mets tried to show financial restraint. Like I've said before, I think there were times where it's okay to be dumb, where it's okay to be irresponsible. And I always thought with a homegrown guy, with a guy who had a chance to retire as a Met, have his number retired and all that, this would have been the time to be stupid. I'd much rather be stupid with Jacob DeGrom than be stupid with Carlos Redone. You know what I'm saying? That's the way I always looked at it. Now, a lot of you guys and gals sent us emails, some of which told us to go F ourselves, some of which thanked us for the cathartic podcast after Jake left. So I wanted to give everybody the respect of reading a lot of these emails. We'll go through that. Joe DeMeo is going to join us in a little bit. That'll almost get our mind off of DeGrom. We go deep into the Met Farm System. So if you're not that familiar with the farm system of our favorite baseball team, Joe's the best at it. He knows so much about it. We're going to go through the guys we saw last year, hear more about them because we didn't see that much of them, and go deep into the farm system. So consider it like a distraction from the DeGrom stuff and obviously all the fallout. And then we'll also react to the Hall of Fame announcement, which I thought was a joke, and then an official plan of what to do now that Jake's gone. Let's read some of these emails. First from Thomas Daughtry, Evan Pete. It's a sad day. It's a bad day. 
I'm with you guys. This hurts. The episode was cathartic, though. Thanks for putting it out there. Misery loves company. We appreciate that. I can't see how this team can be better next season or how this offseason will be a success, which I agree with. Maybe Trey Turner and Carlos Radon would ease this thing a bit. I definitely prefer Radon over Verlander. However, that seems like a real long shot. Just seems like last year was their shot, and now with no DeGrom, what feels like coming off year careers, I'm not feeling good at all. One thing you said, Evan, that I find hard to believe is that one day the Mets will be retiring Jake's number. I think like my hopes of the 2023 season, that out went out the window today. Obviously referring to Friday. Um, the retired number thing, look, we're all going to have emotions right now. I believe there are a lot of Met fans who agree with Thomas who would say, Evan, you're nuts. There's no way they'd retire his number. Time does heal all wounds. And I think what happens next, not only for the Mets, but what happens next for Jake is going to play a huge role in that. And I'll give you an example that's not a perfect example, but there is no perfect example because there's no comparison to Jake leaving. I think we all forget that Edgardo Alfonso played for any other team. Now, Alfonso's not a Hall of Famer. I understand that. But he was a beloved Met. He left as a free agent. He was offered more money. The Mets weren't that interested in bringing him back because I think they were concerned about his back issues, which they were right about. But because Alfonso didn't go on to bigger and better things, I think our brain just forgets that Fonzie was a giant and then actually bounced around the league a little bit. It's, it's sort of out of your mind. So if DeGrom is never the same guy, you know, and this contract turns out to be a failure for Texas, oddly as this may seem, I think that only enhances his Met legacy and maybe how we feel about him. Because then 10 years from now, when we look back at him leaving, there won't be that same bitterness. There'll be this attitude of, oh, well, we love Jake, but thank God he left because things would have went bad. I think if he goes to Texas and wins a World Series and wins a few more Cy Youngs and we fail, I still think there could be a day where his numbers retired, but it would make things a little bit tougher. You know what I mean? Is that a fair way to look at the retired number thing, Pete? Uh, yeah, and especially because I'm assuming that when that – I'm assuming Cohen is going to have this team for quite some time. I do. So that being said, this might be a sore subject for a lot of people when he does retire in general. And uh, if there's bad blood between Cohen and DeGrom or anybody in the Mets organization, I think we may actually see this stretch out till maybe like the next owner. Like someone has to do like some like lip service nah. in the, in, later on in life. It wasn't that bad though. Like, the breakup wasn't bad. Like what's coming out now that the Grom was distant, that the Grom wanted a ranch in Texas, that the Grom didn't want to befriend Steve Cohen. Like it's not great, but it's also easy stuff to overcome 15 years from now when DeGrom doesn't have to live in New York city. He has to fly in one day and, you know, wave and get a standing ovation, you know? And I also think that this owner or whoever's owning the team 15 years from now, because we're talking about a long time from now, we're not talking about next year. We're not talking about his reaction. If he pitches for Texas at city field next year, which is a different discussion, which I'm sure we'll get to. Um, a lot of things will change and a lot of things will be forgotten about. And I think little things like, oh, he really didn't want to be here. He didn't give the Mets a final offer. I sort of think that kind of stuff gets forgotten about. Uh, Anthony Bala emailed, DeGrom Bolting hurts. I was willing to go to four years, 180. That was the offer I threw out there weeks ago, so I agree with you. But I don't think he wanted to be here. I'm okay with resettling for the year. They'll make the playoffs. Everybody does now. 
<laughs> we'll see. Let Nimmo walk if he wants more than 20 per. Well, guess what? Nimmo's gone then. Loads of cash coming off the books after this year. Don't need to panic. I don't think the the panic thing that I had the other night is more about DeGrom was our guy. You know, I, I still stand by replacing him with Verlander and Radon from a baseball standpoint. I don't feel good about. I can give you baseball reasons why I would have preferred the gamble of Jake because I think both Carlos Radon, it's Radon, by the way. I did look it up. Radon <laughs> and Verlander, both of them offer huge risks, similar to the risk that DeGrom had. I was just w- more willing to make that risk with Jake. So I think there are good answers this offseason. They're just not as good as the answer would have been of keeping Jake. Could I just make the one caveat about the Rodon thing? Yeah. If you noticed his two best years, and this is why I'm very nervous about him. Last year, I was very much a trade deadline, all about picking him up because it was a short window. He's fighting for a contract. The last, his best two years of his career, he's basically been off of a, a you know, free agent contract. Yeah. That, that's basically what it is. So I don't like to overcommit to guys who only play well when it's for money. I get nervous. So that's what scares me about Carlos Rodon. Totally get it. Totally get it. Kevin L. writes, Evan, I hear you. Sucks about Jake. My only thought while listening was nobody knows DeGrom in terms of health better than the Mets. Cut them some slack. Uh, I mean, you're right. They know his health better than Texas, but I think we're trying to predict his health now. That's really what it comes down to. You know, Jacob DeGrom was a very durable pitcher between 2014 and really 2020. And he went out and for the most part made all of his starts. 2016, he got hurt at the end of the season. I can't ignore that. But outside of that, he was an innings eater. Like, if we compare the amount of starts he's made over the last, let's say, three seasons or four seasons to Verlander and Radon, do the math. You know, it's 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 going to come up a lot closer than you think. And I know that Verlander didn't pitch in 20 and didn't pitch in 21, but that's a factor. You know, we just can't eliminate that. We can't ignore that. There are health concerns around Jake but there are also health concerns around every other big-time pitcher that's out there. Michael Finelli sent a nice email. It was very very quick, to the point, and I appreciated it. And I could tell he's a Yankee fan because I don't think a Met fan would have written it this way. And I appreciate the Yankee fan showing compassion for me and all of us. I hope a World Series is in your future. You guys deserve it. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Wendy Lubinsky. Wendy, I feel you. Wendy, dear Evan. Thank you guys for the podcast. It was honestly therapeutic. You and I have many of the same feelings about the situation and how the Mets screwed it up. I appreciate you verbalizing your emotions as a fan. I 100% agree. I can't listen to SNY trying to tell us the Mets did the right thing. Still in my sad phase, but I will always root for Jake. I think I'm going to root for Jake too, Wendy. And I know that's not a popular opinion to have, and Hoffman can call me out easily and say, Evan's saying that because he has Jacob DeGrom as a keeper in our fantasy league. Hey, he's up for he's up for sale, by the way. Like, I'm open uh, to trading well, Jake. <laughs> well, that's the first tell that you're over Jacob DeGrom is that he's up for sale. I'm not. No, no, no. I'm not over it. Sometimes you never get over it. I'm more open. For, I listen to offers. I used to never listen to offers for DeGrom. Hoff will tell you because he tried to make a few. And I would always say, no, 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 no. Now I'll listen. Doesn't mean I'll trade him. Look, we we mentioned this a few weeks ago in the disaster scenarios of DeGrom. I, I made the point, Texas was the best place as a Met fan, and I stand by that. So if he was going to leave, 
And Buster only wrote a very interesting piece. It was an ESPN insider article. So I'll try to paraphrase for those that don't spend the money. DeGrom wanted Atlanta. At least that was the perception that DeGrom really did want Atlanta close to home. He grew up as a Brave fan, which I did not know. And I hate to say I respect, but I sort of do. We've been saying that a lot about Aaron Judge growing up as a Giant fan, that DeGrom wanted Atlanta, but they were priced out. And so knowing that, that's another reason to just be thrilled. And I know thrilled is the wrong word because I'm still devastated he's gone, but thrilled it's Texas. Because him going to Atlanta would have just been a game changer on a lot of levels. This podcast is very different if Jacob DeGrom goes to Atlanta. So him being in Texas as we laid out, and you can go into the archives if you want to hear more details on this for some reason. Um, Texas was always the best place for him to go if he wasn't going to stay with the Mets. But I think, I think I'll root for him too. But I'll let you know once the season starts. Clayton Caldwell. He's going he's gonna to rip me a little bit, and I respect that, and I appreciate that. Good morning. I listen to the podcast on DeGrom, and while I agree he is impossible to replace, the one thing I will say is this. You say you can't blame DeGrom for taking the most money and the better deal. Yet Jake sat here for years and told everyone he wanted to be in New York and wanted to be a lifelong Met. To me, that's where he deserves some criticism. You can't say you want to be a lifelong Met and then take a deal without going back to the club for a final offer. Sure, anyone would take the best deal when presented to them. I would have done the same thing. But you look like a fraud when you say you want to play your entire career in one uniform and then totally not do everything in your power to make that happen. He brings up, by the way, that's a great point by Clayton, which I'll address in a second. Furthermore, some of the things you say about the Mets leaking information about him not wanting to be here is true, but actions also speak louder than words on Jake's part. I feel some of his quotes recently and his attitude has been different the last year or so. There's been a disconnect with the Mets and DeGrom for a while, and I believe it started when DeGrom threw a side session in Washington and then hoped the fence and dodged reporters. Uh, Something has been amiss since between those two sides. I think that's when things changed for Jake. I can't pinpoint what the issue is or was, but that's when things changed. Finally, I don't think the Mets are totally clean here either. You're accurate when you say they valued guys outside the organization more than guys on our team. I'll agree with that. My point is Jake sat here for years and years saying he wanted to be a lifelong Met and take the deal that pays you the most money. That means you want to take the deal with the most money and the lifelong Met thing wasn't that important. In the end, it sucks, but it's time to move on because there's nothing we could do about it. Hopefully we're celebrating a World Series win in the near future. It's a great email by Clayton. I really do appreciate that. You spent a lot of time sending it and you made a ton of really good points. I can't argue the stuff about what DeGrom said. Because he did say a lot, it's really cool to spend your whole career with one team. Uh, I'm going to keep in constant contact with the Mets. That was said by him. The only thing I could think of, and I don't think DeGrom will ever address this, so we're always going to speculate, is that maybe he was turned off by the negotiation and saw how far off they were. That it's not like he was going to come back to the Mets and the Mets had been close. The Mets were not close. The Mets hadn't budged off a three-year deal. He was getting a five-year deal with a vesting option for a sixth. Now, can you still give the Mets the last shot? Absolutely. And I agree. If you really wanted to be here, you at least do that, even if it's way off. Then at least you could say, hey, I gave the Mets one last try. And the Mets said no. I told them the final offer, and they said no. So I think you're right about that, and that's why I opened this podcast by admitting it. It does feel like Jake wanted to leave. No doubt. 
It felt that way. Now, was a part of it the negotiations? Maybe, because DeGrom in a lot of ways, and it's a part of why he became my favorite player, has always been treated like the second guy. He wasn't the ace. Matt Harvey was. He isn't the ace. Syndergaard is. They can't wait to pay Max Scherzer and give him three years and all that money. And now, the most years they would offer Jake, their guy, who is a few years younger, was the same amount of years, but less money, that they gave Max Scherzer. So, disrespected? Maybe. Pete Cohen writes, first, awesome podcast, Jake. You hit every point. Thank you. SNY take was awful. Oh, my SNY take was awful? All right. So, unfortunately... I do not trust this organization and Steve Cohen with all the money to get it right. It all blew up in the very beginning of his tenure when he chose or felt forced to go with the smartest man and the most condescending man in the room, Sandy Alderson. (laughs) Sandy is not going to spend because he's going to show you how smart he is. McCann, not Rio Mudo, no Springer. Then he gets a bunch of second-tier administrators, and now Billy Epler. We signed Cannon Escobar, not Schwarber, not Castellanos. We let Aaron Loop walk, no Andrew Chafin. It's a lot of criticisms in two sentences. How do the Mets and Phillies look if the Mets had Rio Muto and Schwarber? Stevie got it done with Max because he got directly involved. Sandy's trade for Lindor also a zero, which then forced Stevie to give him that ridiculous contract. I have no hope. <laughs> His first decision was a Theo or even a Dombrowski, we'd be in a better place. We will be worse in 2023. I think when the season begins, the Braves, Phillies, Cardinals, Dodgers, Padres, and maybe Giants will all be better. And I don't believe Verlander or Radon will be Mets. What hurts the most is that with the Wilpons, this cheap mentality was expected, though it was going to be so different with Steve. It's not. That's from Peter. So maybe he agreed with my SNY point. I'm not sure. Um, I think that I think that he did. Okay. That, that's very positive of everything you've said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you basically body bagged everything the Mets have done over the last few years. Uh, let's see what this offseason looks like before I'm determining what teams are better. You know what I'm saying? Let's go through that. Uh, finally, Bill Cava. We got a lot of emails, but now that I'm seeing how much time this is taking, I can't get through all of them. I will write back to everyone else. I apologize. Bill Cava writes, anything to read into the Friday night news dump of the Grom's announcement? That's the spot where news goes to get buried. Jake and his agent are the only ones with motivation to do that, thinking he was going to come off as douchey. You know... It's an interesting point because I'm always uh, intrigued by the Friday news dump. Jacob deGrom never loved the attention. That was always the difference between him and Harvey and him and Syndergaard. I was convinced he cut his hair because it brought him too much attention. And he said, ah, I'm not going to make my hair a story. I'm going to cut it short. So maybe the Friday news dump is not to avoid looking douchey, but the Friday news dump is he just doesn't want to be talked about. Let me put it out there on a Friday night and let it just go away. I I wouldn't read that much into it other than the fact that the Rangers wanted to get the deal done before the winter meetings and they got it done. Look at the contract they gave him. They gave him a monster, monster contract. This whole thing is very, very, very disappointing. An off season ago, we were so enthused by not only the possibilities, but the muscle of Steve Cohen adding Max Scherzer, a guy that we said at the time, I can't believe they signed Max Scherzer. I can't believe they were able to use the sheer pocketbook to convince Max to stay. What makes me sad is that this owner didn't use the sheer power of the pocketbook to keep Jacob DeGrom, even if he didn't want to be here. And that's what sucks. 
Now, Joe DeMeo coming up. He hosts his own Mets podcast as well, which is very good, called the Mets Pod. He also works with SNY. He's the only one from SNY I didn't destroy over the last few days uh, when I did that pod a couple days ago. And I'm sure on the fan with Craig, I'll continue to destroy their coverage because I thought it was embarrassing. I'm sorry, the thoughts are going through my head of all the people I just want to crush. Gary Apple, what opinion he had. I just wanted to rip my head off. John Heyman, who doesn't work for SNY, but actually had the balls to write an article that said Met fans should rejoice because they didn't give DeGrom that contract. Now, I like John. I think we're sort of friends. John, I say this with peace and love. You're an ass. That was the dumbest thing you've ever written. Seriously. It's the dumbest. I, I don't care what else you've ever written in your career. There's nothing dumber than telling Met fans we should rejoice that Jacob DeGrom left because we didn't give him that contract. Anyhow, Joe DeMeo will take us through the Met farm system. And shortly after that, who should they target and why? I'll give you specific reasons why the Mets have to go a certain route when they look to replace Jacob DeGrom, plus reaction to the Hall of Fame stuff right after we talk to Joe DeMeo. Let's talk mess prospects with an absolute expert. Uh, I followed this man on Twitter for many, many years. He's the host of the wildly popular Mets pod and works for SNY, Joe DeMeo. Joe, thank you very much for coming on the Rico. I appreciate it. You got it, Evan. Happy to be here. All right. I got a lot of questions. Let's start off with, we watched Brett Beatty at the major league level, and it was a short period of time. So for those of us who were just watching Met games, we saw a guy who defensively, is not very good. Is that a fair representation of what he really is? Can he be a better defensive third baseman? How do you evaluate him defensively? Yes, he can be a better defensive third baseman. And there was actually a lot of growth from him this year defensively at the minor league level. Uh, Like you said, very small sample size at the big league level. It, it, it It takes a little time for a guy that when he was drafted back coming out of high school, the projections was this guy is going to end up at first base. And he wanted Mm. to basically defy what all the scouts and the experts and the pundits said. And he's worked very hard. Um, Lateral quickness is not his best friend, but that's really what's I think going to hold him back from being a premium defensive third baseman. Uh, He has plenty of arm for the position. There's no doubt about that. I mean, he was a pitcher in high school, uh, actually high school football teammates with, Jets wide receiver Garrett Wilson so they were yeah so there's a little Met Jet connection for you there but he played quarterback there and uh, he also pitched and was up to 93 or 94 on the gun in high school so he's got arm um, he's got good hands it's the lateral quickness that I think holds him back from being a very good defensive third baseman but I think he could be passable I I can see a lot of scenarios over the next few years because obviously if he hits he plays there's no question whether it's DH third base he hits he plays I could see a lot of scenarios where he makes the most sense in the outfield. And we've seen this a lot over the last few years. Infielders of the New York Mets becoming outfielders at the major league level, whether it's the attempt with Dominic Smith, whether it's even Jeff McNeil, we've seen a lot of it. Do you think he can become an average defensive left fielder if circumstances sort of lead to that being his best positional fit for this team? So he did play some left field in the minor leagues as well. Uh, when him and Mark Vientos were both with double a Binghamton for a minute there, like a month or so, they were alternating almost daily who played left and who played third. And Beatty was better at both Vientos. Oh, he was. Okay. 
Yeah, Vietos essentially might as well look like he's never taken a fly ball in his life in the outfield. <laughs> so uh, I don't think he has a future in the outfield. Beatty could be a passable left fielder, and he has enough arm, like I mentioned, for the spot. So there is some flexibility there. It's funny you say that about Vientos because the impression I got was Buck Showalter hated Mark Vientos. And I got that based on some of the comments he made, like specifically when he was asked about Vientos being called up before he was called up. He made a comment about what has he done that's so great, almost implying like forget the offense. What about his defense? And then when he was up here, he never played him in the field, never once. So is he obviously you mentioned Beatty's better at third base and left field. Does he have, if he can hit, any position future, or is he just likely to be a DH if he ever can hit consistently at the major league level? He's a first-base DH, and I've thought this for going on a couple years now, that he would be a first-base DH at the next level. And and I do think he could hit. I don't know what the deal was with the Mets this year, and not necessarily just a buck thing, but it was clear that something didn't click. I don't know what it was, but Vientos more than warranted the call up based on how he was performing at the AAA level, especially that he destroys left-handed pitching. Right. And when the Mets got Daniel Vogel back, there was like we forget that was kind of early July. So that was there was a gap between that and the deadline and everyone said, "All right, well they they need to go find a right-handed complement for him at the deadline." I was screaming on my podcast just let Vientos play for right. a couple weeks and see if you could save prospects or whatever you have to trade to get a right-handed compliment. They didn't do it. And then they overpaid for Darren Ruff, who stunk, obviously. <laughs> and yes. at that at that point, I don't know if they were trying to justify the trade and what they gave up or everything by keep throwing Ruff out there or just figuring the veteran would figure it out. But it was a weird year for Vientos, and it has me questioning how the Mets feel about him for the long term. How, you know, we saw Alvarez get the call up very, very late, and there was certainly an argument to bring him up earlier, just as a right-handed DH. But defensively, are they nervous about his ability to kind of have that great relationship with pitchers? Are they concerned about his overall defense? Are they concerned by pitch framing? Like, where are the levels of concern and confidence with Alvarez defensively? We know what he could potentially do offensively. That's why I don't even bother asking. But defensively, what's the feel for him? Uh, Pitch framing and blocking balls in the dirt, those are things that he does need some work on. Um, But one thing that I I always like to note when I talk about Alvarez's defense, I don't think he's ever winning a gold glove. And that's fine. Like, he doesn't need to be Yachty Molina, right? He just can't be Gary Sanchez. Like, right. if he could hang out somewhere in the middle, the bat will play enough for that to work. He has a cannon of an arm. Um, so that's that's the positive on the defensive side. Works really hard. From the pitchers I talk to in the minor leagues, they think he's very prepared. He stays on top of the game plan. He help, He does English and Spanish. So he's kind of helping out, uh, helping out there. But he's only 20 years old. Like most 20 year old catchers are in low A, not even like the equivalent of Port St. Lucie. And he made the major leagues based largely on his bat. So his defense is kind of at the level of, let's call it double A, but his bat is major league ready. So it's a tough, it's a tough balance when you think about the 2023 team. Yeah. Do you think that because you mentioned the cannon of an arm and there was a time I know growing up as a baseball fan, I would always view Mm -hmm. defense from a catcher based on their ability to throw base runners out. And that sort of kind of went away because guys just don't steal as much. It's just not as, it's not as important. Now it's more about pitch framing, things like that. 
Do you think with the bigger bases and the rule changes in baseball coming, you've got the limit of how many times you could pick a guy off. You've got the bigger bases, like I mentioned. Do you think that base running becomes a bigger thing and Alvarez's cannon almost becomes a bigger weapon? I do. And I think the whole purpose of baseball is they want there to be more stolen bases. They want to, in theory, bring more some more excitement into the game. So if you can't throw, like when you mentioned growing up watching baseball, you thought a catcher being good or bad was based on throwing. The first thing I thought of is we all thought Mike Piazza couldn't play catcher. Yes, because, because of that. he yeah, he would hit up. It looked like he was going to hit a pitcher when he was trying to throw a guy out at second. Right. Uh, but he was good at pitch framing and blocking and all that. Like modern day, people would like Piazza as a defensive catcher. Uh, but definitely, I think the new rules will be advantageous for the catchers that can throw. Uh, but yes, Alvarez needs to continue to work on his pitch framing, his blocking, and just kind of his mobility. I mean, you you see what he looks like. He's not going to be the most mobile person in the world. He's kind of built like a little bowling ball. Yeah, I I assume that these guys aren't being traded in, in the course of this conversation. Obviously, you never know when a trade's going to go down. Shohei Otani can walk through that door, and the Mets may give up three or four of top prospects. But when they drafted... Parada. Is that how you pronounce it, by the way? Kevin Parada, yeah. the catcher they drafted? Yep. Right. yep. When they draft him, and you know that he's close, he's not a guy that you're going to wait five years on like Jet Williams is. My thought was, okay, what? how do they view this? Are they viewing this as Alvarez's long-term at DH? Are they viewing this as Parada moves positions? So from what you've seen from Parada, from what you've heard of Parada, is he the long-term catcher or is Alvarez the long-term catcher? It's a great question. I think the the thought process behind the draft pick was, I mean, I do mock drafts and everything for SNY, and I follow this and talk to people throughout the league. I couldn't find a single person that would tell me that Kevin Prado was going outside the top five picks. Why exactly he fell? Um, kind of up for debate. Some people questioning the defense long-term at catcher, uh, but he not quite like Alvarez is a good athlete behind the plate. So there's some thought that maybe Parada would be someone that could switch positions down the road. But when it comes to drafting, I think, you know, we talk about it when you talk about the NFL draft and things like that. It's just get the best player that you can. And Kevin Parada kind of fell in their lap. They took him. And if the absolute worst case scenario is, oh, no, we have two awesome catchers, like you're, you're in a better spot than a lot of teams. So they, they just took the best talent. So how far away is he? I know he played a handful yeah. of games at single A. Yeah. Uh, he's 21 years old. Like, What's a realistic expectation of when he could make the majors? Most college players, if they go on kind of a normal trajectory, it's about two years. So like, I would expect Parada to open with high A Brooklyn, maybe make a double A Binghamton by the end of the summer. And then kind of depending on how late he gets there, he could start 2023 in AA or AAA. So uh, I expect them to be advanced. The bat is great. The pitch recognition skills are plus plus. Um, like he draws walks, doesn't swing at bad stuff. Um, and they've already cleaned up some of his swing mechanics. Because if you watch some of his tape from Georgia Tech, um, we're on camera. The other pe the people watching aren't. But he kind of held his bat like he was like those – uh, people that are leaving with like a bag and a stick over their shoulder. Like right. It looked like he was just holding the bat back like this. And it they already kind of like brought his bat up and changed his elbow angle. And they're, they're already working hard. And uh, the Mets player development system is taking a big step forward uh, in, in a lot of things. And they've made some key hires for that. And Parada, I think, is going to be a big beneficiary of it. 
All right. The ultimate question with Ronnie Mauricio would be, if he's not traded, where's he playing? Is it third base? Is it the outfield? He's hitting very well in winter league, which is great to see. That's fantastic. I, I, I've always had this feeling that they're going to just use him as a trade chip, not necessarily for a mediocre player, but maybe for some star that becomes available. But if that's not the case, if he's here long term, where's his position? I think he's an outfielder, and I've campaigned for that for a while. Um, and he's actually playing third base right now down in the Dominican Winter League because O'Neill Cruz joined the team, and he's obviously going to play shortstop. Um, so they actually reached out to the Mets and asked if it was okay that he plays third. And Mets said, sure, that's fine. I think he is an outfielder. He has enough arm to probably play third if you want, but he's kind of like a bigger guy and – I don't, I don't think the, like, the lateral quickness isn't quite there. I think you see him in the outfield where he is athletic, and I think he'll be better when the movements are kind of like bigger. Like He could go gap to gap and you know cover some ground in the outfield. Um, and I've actually always kind of been the low guy on Mauricio, at least amongst the public, and it feels like people are starting to catch up to me a little bit now. Uh, but I've almost wondered if I've even taken it a little too far. I think the power is very legitimate. He's filled out his frame. He makes really good contact. Uh, the walk rate, it might just never come. And that's okay. Like, I think I've, as I've evaluated him throughout his trek through the Mets minors, I've always just said the walk rate is what's going to hold him back. The pitch recognition skills are going to hold him back. And maybe it caps his ceiling a little bit, but Javi Baez swings at everything, <laughs> right? Right. So like, I, I think it's, it's okay nowadays. Not everyone has to be Brandon Nimmo and Jeff McNeil and Mark Canna, these guys that work these counts. But if he could make kind of baby step improvements on his pitch recognition skills, where it's, he's not chasing so much, I think he'll get pitches to hit and the powers there. Yeah. I mean, you could make up for it, but I feel like nowadays yeah. there's almost a penalty for not yeah. walking enough that, <laughs> And it's funny because 25 years ago, we wouldn't look at it the same way. There were so many yeah. guys that didn't walk that much. And it was, hey, not a big deal. He's hitting 310. All right, we'll live with that. Yeah. So it's it's sort of changed. When Here's what I'm curious about with him. So he's at double A last year for most mm -hmm. of the season. So logic would say he either starts the year at triple A or maybe it's more time at double A. And they hadn't changed his position yet. He has still been a shortstop. Now, obviously, Francisco Lindor is not going anywhere. The Mets locked him up to a long-term deal. So, and a lot of guys come up as shortstops. We've seen it. I remember Edgardo Alfonso was a shortstop in the minor. Juan Ligares. Jones. Juan Ligares. Hey, that's a great yeah. example. So eventually guys move. When do you move them though? Like, aren't we at the point now at 21 years old at playing at double A that the move would be now? The move should have been this year. I firmly believe they should at least have let him dabble in other spots. If they wanted his primary position to be shortstop. So that way he continues to develop as a hitter. I would have been okay with that. But the fact that he just didn't play anywhere at all bothered me. Uh, so I think the time should have been this year. It, then it definitely has to be this coming year. Uh, if so, if he's, if he's coming to camp in St. Lucie in a couple months and he's still with the Mets, he's not traded for anything this off season. I would very, very much like to see him taking outfield reps. Take some third base reps too, but I, I, that's where I would really focus. But by the way, the one thing I'll ask about with a trade is I remember at the deadline, there was a lot of pushback to, well, can't, you can't trade a top prospect for David Robertson. You can't trade a top prospect for this. If they trade Ronnie Mauricio during the offseason, 
what kind of player would be okay to take back? Like, I understand <laughs> yeah, yeah. a relief pitcher like Robertson, that's ah, not enough. Okay, 21-year-old shortstop. We know his ceiling. We know the warts. What's the kind of player that for you, you'd say, okay, that's a, that's a good enough return for a prospect of his caliber? Can I get a number four starter for Mauricio and, you know, a single A kid with some upside, something like that? I, like, let's just say you sign Jacob deGrom or you sign Justin Verlander or Carlos Rodon. You sign, you sign one of the premium free agent starters to pair with Max up at the top. And Kodai Senga doesn't work out. Chris Bassett doesn't work out. You don't really want Taiwan Walker back, I don't think. Not that bad, at least. Then you look into the trade market. I don't know exactly what's going to be out there, but... I find it hard to believe that the Mets' entire offseason is going to be solely free agency, right? Well, I'll give you a guy. I'll give you an example that I think fits what you're describing, and my reaction would be no, but maybe you say yes to it. Would you trade Ronnie Mauricio for Pablo Lopez of the Marlins? Yeah, I think I actually would. You Uh, would? Pablo, yeah. I like Pablo Lopez a lot. The thing is, we're Mets fans, me and you, Evan. So we just watched the Mets beat the ever-loving heck out of Pablo Lopez every time he takes the mound against us. He's very, he's very good against everybody else. So, yeah, actually, if you told me I could get Pablo Lopez, I'd be actually be about that. Okay. No, because that, that fit what you said. Yeah. Back, basically, yeah. a back-of-the-rotation guy. Does, right. Is he too, he's 6'2", 6'3", he's a tall kid. He's fast. Mm-hmm. He's a good athlete. Do you think that could translate to center field, or do you think it need, would need to be a corner outfield spot for Mauricio? I would... I would start in center for sure. I would start in center. And then if that doesn't work out, you can shift to the corner. It's much easier to do it that way than do the opposite, right? Putting him in left and saying, oh, now we're going to shift you to center. All right, let's talk uh, some pitching because they have a lot of, and this is what I've read, they've got pitching prospects, but further away. Guys that may not contribute for a couple of years. And pitching depth's important. Guys get hurt, you're going to need guys. Right now, when you look at the young pitchers in their system, we saw Jose Budo for like five minutes. Mm-hmm. It was not good. It was very, yeah. very unimpressive that day in Philadelphia. It was mm-hmm. a great game because the Mets came back and yeah. won, so everybody was happy. Yes. But we'll start with Budo. Who else? Who are the other young arms that I'm talking about this season? There are injuries. This guy may come in and make a spot start. Who are we talking about? Uh, Jose Budo. Like that. That's pretty much who we're talking that's about. It? There's, Nobody there's, else. Right now, there is not much at the upper levels of the minors to be excited about. Like, I'm sure they're going to sign guys to minor league deals, and there's always people that kind of emerge a little bit. But Jose Buto is the one I have my eye on. You know, he had that one start cameo in Philly. I was at uh, one of my friend's son's baptisms. So, like, I was following my phone. I'm like, oh my God, Jose Buto is getting absolutely shelled right now. Uh, <laughs> But he, he went back to AAA, which he was kind of fresh to AAA when he got called up. He got called kind of out of necessity. And he had a 1.05 ERA the rest of the season in AAA. So I actually think he has a chance to be good there. Um, but the depth for the rotation, like that's why you're seeing the trades for the LEAs or Hernandez types. And you're going to see, I think you're going to see more moves like that. The Mets are going to be shopping at the top of the market for things, but I think it's also a focus for them to improve the floor of their 40-man roster because they're, like you said, you're going to need 8, 9, 10 starters to get through a season, and you don't want to see Jared Eikhoff. Yeah, no kidding. So the <laughs> other starting pitchers, like the Mike mm-hmm. Vassil, is it Vassil Va- or Vassil? Va- Vassil. Mike Vassil. There you go. Yep. Got to get it right because by the time he's yep. in the majors, I won't be effing that yep. up. I, yep. Mike Vassil, Calvin Ziegler, Dominic mm-hmm. Hamill, 
Those mm-hmm. are some names I've read about. Are those guys yeah. a couple of years away? Give us a quick synopsis on some of those guys. Yeah. Uh, so I actually have Hamill as my second highest pitching prospect in the system behind Blade Tidwell, which what a name. The Mets second round pick from last year. Um, yeah. So I remember but, they just drafted yeah. him. So I assume yeah. he's even yeah. further away, right? Yeah. He's a little further away, but he's he's very, very talented. Would have been a first round type prospect, but he uh, had shoulder tendonitis and missed most most of the college season. Uh, but Hamill was their third round pick in the 2021 class where they didn't sign Kumar Rocker. And he's emerged in a big way when he got promoted from St. Lucie to Brooklyn. More often than not, when you see pitchers take a step up, their production is at best kind of even or maybe a little a, a tick back until they adjust. Like Dom went to the next level and was even better right out of the gate. He won the organizational pitcher of the year. Uh, he's considered, I, I was told by scouts when they drafted him, that he's a spin rate monster. Just everything he mm. throws is huge spin rates, uh, huge breaking stuff. Like his curveball is almost Seth Lugo-like. And when I have evaluated him, I think he probably profiles a bit as like a number number four type starter. Or if his command doesn't quite fully catch up, he could end up, a Seth Lugo type of reliever. Uh, he should start in double A. I think he's going to be close. Uh, Vassal, the, the other name you mentioned, I think he'll follow him to double A. Uh, he had an impressive showing in the Arizona Fall League. Uh, he's a guy that you have to go way back to think of kind of where his talent stems from. Uh, when he was in high school, he was considered a top 25 prospect in that draft class total, including college, high school, everything. He was a top 25 guy. Uh, He decided to take his name out of the draft to attend the University of Virginia, where they decided you're going to stop being a four-seam fastball curveball guy. You're going to be a sinker slider guy. He stopped missing bats in college, was ineffective with his control, fell to the eighth round. The Mets took him, and they said, well, we're giving you back the four-seam fastball and curveball. And all of a sudden, seems like something has been unlocked with him. So the Mets believe they got a steal with him. Those guys should be in double A, which I think put them, you know, I guess maybe optimistically it could be later this year. Like kind of like Tyler McGill had that type of rise from double A up to the major leagues within one season. But I would look right. at them more as 2024 options. Yeah, I guess when I hear double A, because as soon as you said that, I'm thinking, all right, yeah. if they pitch really, really well, they yeah. definitely get on that radar and make a yeah. spot start late in the year. And guys, I guess will be screaming for him. Like, let's see the kid. Let's see that. Instead of the 35 year old veteran, you happen to claim off waivers before that. Is- yeah. I ju- yeah. I just don't, uh, I try to not bank on exceptional, exceptional performance. I try to just right. follow like a normal development trajectory, but certainly if Dom Hamill continues the kind of growth that he did from St. Lucie to Brooklyn up to Binghamton, he could very much be in the conversation. Is Matt Allen, who has not pitched in three years. I mean, we've heard his name mm-hmm. for so long, but 2020 didn't pitch, 2021, 2022, which is crazy. I mean, he's had three years where he hasn't faced minor league competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, is he still looked at as a top-line prospect, and what are the expectations? I assume it's going to take a while since he hasn't faced minor league pitching yeah. in a while. He has a ton to prove, Hitting, uh, for say. sure. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Th- there's an absolute ton he has to prove. When he got drafted – they drafted him in the third round um, in the same draft that they took Brett Beatty in the first. And if I had Matt Allen as a higher ranked prospect in the draft than I did Brett Beatty. And 
Allenfeld, due to signability, Boris's camp floated a really big number. Nobody seemed to want to touch it. The Mets eventually, the Mets had a relationship with him and realized that he would sign for a number lower than what was being reported. And they figured it out. They signed him whole deal. And he actually, which was very rare at the time, a high school kid pitched in Brooklyn, which at that time, Brooklyn was basically exclusively college seniors and people of that age. He went and pitched in the championship game to help them win the New York Penn League championship the last year of the New York Penn League. Uh, So definitely an advanced talent, but then COVID happens. The 2020 minor league season just doesn't happen. Canceled. No minor league baseball. Then he reports to camp, needs Tommy John surgery, misses the year, reports to camp again this year, needs nerve transposition surgery, which Mm. is kind of a common, like a not crazy uncommon, like follow up to Tommy John, but it usually actually happens during the Tommy John recovery. So we don't hear about it. Like it's kind of like a follow up in the middle of things. He kind of had a year later and that wiped out this past season. Uh, So despite the talent and everything, I always caution when I write them up and I talk about them, the talent on paper is there. I need to see them. I'm still going to rank them in my top 10, just sheer, sheerly on upside. Uh, But I need to see him pitch because he's thrown 10 and a third professional innings and he got drafted in 2019 and we're about to enter 2023. Uh, But the expectation is he should be ready for spring training. And then at that point, the, the development trajectory, you have to imagine they'd be patient with him on an innings count, at least in his first year. So, yeah, yeah, it's 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 a it's a long road for Matt Allen. But given his age. Oddly, if he were to start in, say, Brooklyn and be in high A, he really would be like a year behind, like a quote unquote normal development for that level. So right. he's not crazy far behind, but he's got to he's got to get going. Now, I was thinking about what you're saying, like what kind of innings limit do you put on a kid that hasn't pitched in three years? Like we want to be restricted. A hundred, a hundred, a hundred, hundred and ten, maybe like yeah. something like that would be my guess. That's what I'm thinking. Uh, Alex yeah. Ramirez. Mm-hmm. Is he the center fielder or left fielder, right fielder of the future for this team? He's 19. Yeah. He played at single A last year. I've heard his name a lot only yeah. because it seems like his name is always mentioned in any kind of trade rumor, like Alex Ramirez in a deal for Shohei Otani. Alex Ramirez in this deal. Uh, how do you view him? Oh, he's a big time emerging prospect. He was uh, a huge international signing a couple of years back, and he is the only prospect in the system that shows a semblance of all five tools. He's not a five-tool player. He's not Mike Trout, whatever, but he can hit for some average. His power took a big step up this year. His pitch recognition skills took a step up this year. He can run. He can play center field. I truly believe he doesn't have to be a corner guy. He could if you want him to be, but I think he can be a center fielder. He's a guy that is right now entering the back end of top 100 lists, kind of in the public world. And I think they're late to the party of him being a top 100 prospect. I think he's probably closer to like a top 50 guy right now with potential to be in the conversation of top 10, top 15 type prospect in baseball. When we talk again this time next year, I saw his numbers at both St. Lucie and Brooklyn were solid. Does that mean he, he actually starts at double A or do they give him a full season at single A this year? I would guess he would start in Brooklyn. I think he would, I think he'd repeat the structure. Like if you look back in 2021, finished in St. Lucie, 
and then he started again in St. Lucie, and then he got called up to Brooklyn. I would bet on him starting in Brooklyn and getting the call up to Binghamton at some point during the season, assuming he continues to perform. That's exciting because even if Brandon Nimmo is back long-term, Brandon Nimmo is Mm -hmm. probably not playing center field, let's say, two years from now. I mean, a lot of times you see center fielders just eventually move to a corner outfield spot, just the way it is. So is he fair to look at as, that's our center fielder in a couple of years, no matter the future of Brandon Immo. I think that is not crazy unreasonable. You know, I, I know that I do the prospect thing, but I try to, I try to balance the whole, this guy is this, right? Cause there's, there's a lot of room there uh, for things to not quite work as planned, but I think you can look at Alex Ramirez as a potential long-term center, center fielder for this team. And if it's a couple of years from now, that lines up with Marcana kind of being out the door. Brandon Nimmo could shift over to left field, like you said. Marte will be kind of ending his contract. And then, you know, Ramirez could be a guy for center field. I I truly believe if we were to have this conversation a year from now today, Alex Ramirez will be a top 20, top 15 prospect in baseball. What is the intellectual reason? Because when I saw it, it didn't make any sense. So I'm sure you're going to give mm-hmm. me a smart reason for why Jake Mangum wasn't protected from the rule five draft, why they left him to be available to any team to take. Why did that happen in your opinion? I had a lot of questions about this myself. I thought it was a no brainer to protect him. Uh, There's no outfield depth in this organization at the upper levels. I mean, Khalil Lee is a guy that they had hopes for, and he has disappointed in more ways than one for them. So that, you know, Khalili's not, I don't think, a big factor for this team going forward. We saw what Nick Plummer is and like whatever. He kind of belongs in AAA. Jake Mangum's a guy that from Mississippi State, SEC powerhouse program, the all-time hits leader in SEC, can play all three outfield spots. Like you said, you follow me on Twitter. You probably saw me post all these videos of him making diving catches and robbing balls. Yes. Uh, that's, yeah. that's why I was yeah. like, Hey, yeah. at least he's a defensive replacement late on this team next year. And now yeah. all of a sudden he may be taken. The, the thought from people that I talk to is they don't know that he will get selected because he, he basically doesn't have any power. And uh. I, I mean that in a nice way, but he's, he's a kind of a contact hitter. He's, he's developed a little more thump than in college where he was just a pure slap hitter. But there's no power in his game, really. He's just a bat-to-ball defense guy. He's not even not like a massive OB on-base guy. But I think he looks like a guy that I would have as the Mets' like fourth or fifth outfielder on opening day, and I wouldn't yes. even frown upon it. Uh, but now we'll see next week at the winter meetings if he gets picked. Uh, I read a, a Rule 5 preview from Baseball America because I'm into the Rule 5 draft to a degree. But they're really into the Rule 5 draft where they write <laughs> previews with like a dozen plus plus players who could get selected. And Mangum did not make that article. So let's just be quiet about it and hope that no one's listening and he sneaks through and he gets to stay with the Mets. And uh, I would if he does not get taken in the Rule 5 draft, I would I would bet good money that you'd see him with the Mets at some point in 23. I mean, it makes sense just on paper for the way the roster may be constructed to start the season. I I have a bias towards Jet Williams for two reasons. Number one, my son's name is Jet, so he's very excited about the fact that there may be a Met with his same name down the road. And B, 
who doesn't love a guy that's like five foot three? Now I know he's he's more than five foot three. He's like five yeah. foot seven, five yeah, foot eight, yeah. whatever he's listed yeah. at. <laughs> he's like our version of Jose Altuve. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, is that who he projects to be? That'd be pretty cool. Is it uh, David yeah. Eckstein? Like, what other short person should we compare Jet Williams to when he gets to the major leagues in a couple of years? Man, uh, it's tough to compare him to the other short gods, but. Uh, what I could tell you is Jet Williams was my favorite player in the draft, and I cover the MLB draft extensively for SNY. Um, I mean, someone's got to do it, so I do it. Uh, <laughs> but but I love the MLB draft. It's something that I've been into since the Mets almost got Justin Verlander out of Old Dominion and ended up with Phil Umber out of Rice instead. Mm. Like That's the <laughs> first MLB draft of my recollection. Uh, but Jet was my favorite player in this draft. Wasn't like the top of my board, like most talented player. But, man, this is a kid that he's a baseball rat. He's an all-hustle player. Like, there's not a game that he played that his jersey wasn't covered in dirt. Like, he's going, you know, balls to the wall all the time. And the best part, he swings. uh, He went to the area code games, which is one of the showcases. And he had the hardest or the fastest swing speed of any of the high school players that were there. And that's true. Jones is there. Um, Elijah Green is there and Tamar Johnson. These are guys that went in the top five of the draft. Those guys are all there. Jet had faster swing speed. But then when you look at his performance in the games, he doesn't swing and miss. Mm. He swings hard and makes contact with everything. I don't think power is going to be a huge part of his game. I think his size kind of limits to what that can, what can, that can really produce. Like, I don't think he's a 20 home run guy, but I think he's going to make contact. I think he's going to play second or center long-term. I think he fits really well at both those spots. Um, he could probably play shortstop if you really wanted him to, uh, but I think second or, or, or center are better fits. And yeah, love Jet Williams. I have him ranked really high in the system. And uh, I think if he continues his development, he's the type of player that Met fans will like absolutely fall in love with. Oh, the way you described him. I mean, no doubt. Yeah. I think we're already in love with him. He hasn't even gotten to yeah. the majors yet. Where does he start the year, you think? St. Lucie. So he'll St. start Lucy. in St. Lucie. Yeah, normal for a high school kid. And, uh, you know, just, just see how it goes. But, you know, I'll be watching plenty of his games this year. So it's weird. You've got Francisco Alvarez, Brett Beatty, Mark Vientos. They all have a chance to be on the major league roster, specifically Beatty and Alvarez. We'll see about Vientos. Mm-hmm. So you've mm-hmm. got your top, top prospects graduating where they're not prospects anymore. They're just going to be major leaguers, and we're going to find out what they are. Where does the Mets system rank in the whole grand scheme of things? Is this a top 15 system? Is this a bottom half system? Like, How do you look at where this thing ranks? They still need to improve their depth, but the top of the system matches up with a lot of organizations in baseball. And uh, if if we're talking present day where those guys are still prospects, it's probably like a top – seven or so system in the sport you wow. take alvarez you take Beatty, you take vientos out it probably drops to like 15 to 17 um but upside i mean when you're talking about like you mentioned calvin ziegler briefly if he takes a step forward he's supremely talented if matt allen just comes out and it's just like well i missed a bunch of time but there's a reason why i was a mid first round draft prospect that fell like that can kind of elevate the things and they have other young players at the lower levels like Simone Juan, who was a big uh, international signing just a year ago. So there's, there's, there's pieces there. They need to continue to improve that depth, which I think it takes years to bounce back from 
what the likes of Brody Van Wagenen and Zach Scott and those guys did that traded away the guys that you and I didn't maybe not didn't care about at the time, but it comes back to bite you a couple of years later when you're these guys like you asked me, where's this guy going to start? All right. Well, now that guy's out of the picture. So now it kind of trickles down from there. So when you trade those guys, there's nothing wrong with doing it when you're trying to win. I'm certainly not saying keep your prospects, uh, but it takes years to build that depth back up when you trade so many of them, especially when you're getting like Keon Broxton for guys. Right. Like, right. On. Yeah, no, I get that. I, you know, I think back to, to my time as a fan, there's been a few occasions in which I've been upset when they've traded prospects because maybe I've, mm-hmm. I've heard of them or I was following them. Uh, the Scott Casimir is everybody. So I kind of leave that one aside. Yeah. Oddly enough. And I was talking to a friend about this recently. Trading Preston Wilson was very difficult, even though they were getting Mike Piazza. <laughs> yeah, Mike back. Piazza. Yeah. But yeah, it's Preston Wilson. It's Mookie's son. Has there yeah. been a prospect over the last, you know, basically your entire life, you could pick anybody mm-hmm. where you were like, oh my God, we're trading him. I love this kid. This I've been watching him. I really believe in him. And it doesn't mean the guy turned into anything, but was there one that really sticks out with you? I thought so. We'll go back to the Johan Santana trade. Mm. And Carlos Gomez was the headlining piece. That was fine. They had Fernando Martinez. They didn't need Carlos Gomez. We were fine <laughs> there. Um, Phil Umber, whatever he went. I was convinced that Diolis Guerra was going to be like a mid-rotation type of starter. And I'll tell you, the guy was in the big leagues like last year. So like he's hung around forever, but yeah. he just never he never kind of fulfilled his potential, uh, but he was someone that at the time I thought really, really highly of. And obviously Jared Kelnick's the most recent example and um, loved him coming out of the draft. And, you know, he gets moved within months of being drafted. And Pete Crow Armstrong, I think, has a chance to come back and bite them in a, in a couple of years. That trade was moronic. Uh, but for the most part, you know, I, I would I always circle back to Dio Lascara and that's staying away from a lot of the big names, just someone that was kind of under the radar that I was a fan of. No, I get it. I get it. Well, we'll see. Hopefully they don't trade any. Is there one right now that would bother you? You know, one where you'd say, don't just, I get it. You got to trade for Otani. I get it. You got to trade for this guy, but I don't want to move him. So I'll keep Alvarez and Beatty out of discussion because they feel like almost big league pieces at this point. If they trade Alex Ramirez, I feel like they would have traded him maybe a year too early in the Mm. sense of if you're talking about like getting a superstar, like if you wait a year, I think Alvarez is a, I'm sorry, Ramirez is a top 15, 20 prospect in the sport where he's headlining a deal for a superstar instead of being the secondary piece, because now he's like a back end top 100 guy. So Ramirez would make me mad. And Jet Williams was my favorite player in the draft. So don't you dare trade Jet Williams. Hey, I'm with you. Amen. Yeah. We, can't, we cannot have Jet Williams not be a part of the New York Mets in the next couple Jet of years. Jet the Met. Can't have it. Jet the Met, man. Yeah. You got, yeah. It can't happen. Well, Joe, I appreciate it. Uh, we could check out Joe DeMeo on the Mets pod. Does a great job with SNY. At PSL to Flushing is your Twitter account still, which is a great name, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you cover the minors, it starts in Port St. Lucie, ends at Flushing. At one point before I got with SNY and other things, I had a website, stlucietoflushing.com, and I wrote stuff on my own. And uh, slowly I've made it to, to where I am, but I will not forget where I came from. So the Twitter handle will stay. That is my thing. PSL to Flushing to Cooperstown. That's yes. the ultimate right there. Yes, sir. <laughs> 
Thank you, Joe. I appreciate it. Joe DeMeo, everybody. All right, good stuff from Joe DeMeo. Always good to go through this Met Farm system and learn about the guys that may be helping us down the road. Now, one thing you heard, they don't have a lot of high-end starting pitchers that are going to help this team soon. And I've laid this point out to Pete, and I think it's become clearer now with DeGrom gone, that the Met formula over the next, I'd say, three to five years is going to be to build around this core offense that they have. Lindor is going to be here for a while. Alonzo and McNeil, I hope, will be here for a while. Um, Francisco Alvarez coming up. Brett Beatty coming up. We'll see about Ronnie Mauricio. We'll see about Alex Ramirez. We'll see about even keeping Brandon Nimmo. But they have a core of offensive players they can build around. And really, they've got to rebuild their rotation every few years. You've got Max Scherzer signed for two more years. You've got Carlos Carrasco for one more year. You can almost every couple of years spend big on starting pitching. And so that's why I lean, a few reasons why I lean Verlander over Radon, but that's one of them. If you can get Verlander on a huge money two-year deal, you are committing the next two years to hoping that Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander can stay healthy. There's a lot of risk to that. I acknowledge it, but Justin Verlander throughout his major league career has always been healthy. Last year, he missed about four or five starts in a year coming back from Tommy John surgery. Obviously, didn't pitch in 21, didn't pitch in 20 because of Tommy John surgery. But prior to that, Justin Verlander would make 33, 34 starts every year. So the hope is, and I get it, there's concern around this because he's 40, but the hope is Justin Verlander goes out and makes you 27, between 27 and 32 starts, and you're only committing to two years. If you sign Carlos Radon, you're committing to probably five. And look, the intriguing part of Radon is how good he was last year, a lefty coming into his own in his early 30s, late 20s. But last year was also the first year of his career in which he was healthy. So think about this. Even though he's a decade younger than Verlander, 10 years younger, I acknowledge that. Can you really be that more confident in his ability to stay healthy compared to Verlander? And the appealing part of Verlander is that it's a short-term deal. Cody Senga is not going to be a short-term deal, but what I like about him is the unknown, the upside of maybe he's going to be even better than we think. His numbers in Japan are outstanding. Giving Chris Bassett a four-year deal to me, no thank you. Jamison Tyone, if I'm viewing Jamison Tyone as a replacement for Taiwan Walker, fine. But if I'm replacing him or I'm using him to replace Chris Bassett, that's when I have an issue. So right now, I look at Verlander-Senga combo as the thing that would most please me. Making a trade's a turnoff because I got to give up a lot of those prospects Joe DeMeo just talked about. Rewind if you missed it. So I look at Verlander and Senga as my top two. Now, a couple of things to keep in mind. Shohei Otani is a free agent at the end of the year. I want to make something very clear. I do not expect the New York Mets to trade for Otani this offseason. In fact, I think it's a 0% chance of happening. The Angels are clearly going to try to win next year. They went out and signed Tyler Anderson. They're going for it. Will they trade him at the deadline? Absolutely on the table. Let's see how bad they are. But I view Otani as an option in free agency. Otani is one of the many, because there's actually a handful of really good starting pitchers available next year. Hence why the short-term deal is preferable with a guy like Verlander. I'll give you some of the names real quick. Shohei Otani, Luis Severino, Hugh Darvish, 
Julio Urias, Aaron Nola, Lucas Giolito. Not bad. Now, year after that, that's the year where Scherzer and Verlander are probably gone. In all likelihood, Verlander is going to be 42 or 41, whatever. Scherzer is going to be pushing 40. Garrett Cole has a player option. He could be a free agent. I know that's unrealistic. I'm just mentioning it. Max Freed, that's who I want. I want to inflict pain on the Atlanta Braves. Max Freed's one of my top targets. You know who else is a free agent after 2025? Zach Wheeler's a free agent. Right that wrong. Tyler Glass now. Let's see what he looks like healthy. And the two guys in Milwaukee, Corbin Burns, Brandon Woodruff, and Shane Bieber. That's why Verlander, to me, is preferable over Radon. Because I'm looking at it as a two-year plan. I'm nervous about com- uh, about committing to Radon for five years. Now, if they add him, do I think that's a good move in the short term compared to the other options? Yeah, if he could build off last year. But I think that the Met best plan at starting pitching for the next couple of years is what I'm laying out. You commit to Scherzer and Verlander as your top two guys for a handful of years and then look at the options as the years go on. And the Mets commit big money to top of the rotation starting pitchers while in the meantime, you hope David Peterson develops. You hope Tyler McGill develops and you hope some of those starting pitchers we talked about in the pod with Joe DeMeo also arrive. So that'd be my plan with the starters. Do you agree with that plan, by the way, Hoff? Does that make sense to you? Are you in uh, lockstep or are you it, an idiot? Uh, I mean, I think you're an idiot for a lot of other things, but no, not this. <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, no, I think this makes the most sense. And by the way, uh, I don't want to do it because I'm not really sure, but do you trust Carlos Baerga as a source? Oh, God. What is Carlos Baerga reporting? It, it, he put it out in Spanish on Instagram, but in translation – the Mets and the and Justin Verlander are close to a two-year deal with a third-year mutual option. Yeah, look, I, I've said this to you before. I have always expected Verlander to be the backup plan. And I've said it many times. It always made sense as a backup plan, so that would not surprise me. And it is, you know, as much as I preferred DeGrom, and I don't want to have to do this every time we talk about it because I preferred DeGrom, I do think Verlander makes the most sense. I like the idea of the short term, the flexibility in two years and the possibilities. I mean, Justin Verlander had a great year last year. There's no question. He had an amazing season. It is a little nerve wracking that you're going to rely on two older guys to lead your rotation, but I do think it's their best option. We'll do a a few Uh, pods throughout the winter meetings because obviously a lot of stuff is going to go down. So expect maybe an extra Rico. You never know. I do, though, just to get back to what you're saying, I do like the idea of just these one-off pitchers, very short-term deals, because if you think about the level of success for the Mets in 2022, it was based off of Bassett, based off of Tywan Walker, um, and those two had these free agent opt-outs. So it it made sense that they were fighting for a lot of money this offseason. So I, I like that. Rather than committing, and I, I, the only thing I would say is, if you could find someone that you could trade, and I know that Al Cantara is not available, and he's been made unavailable. He's they're not trading him. Okay, fine. But if you could find someone like that to trade for cheap, I, that's the only other route I'd go because I do feel that they need some help and depth in this uh, pitch. It won't be for cheap though. That's the thing you got to remind yourself. Uh, there, yeah, there I was know. an email I got of someone suggesting taking Yelich's contract 
as a way to get Corbin Burns for nothing. <laughs> that, hey, we'll take back this awful. And look, I'm all in favor of using money as a weapon. I doubt, though, that the Brewers would do that. I don't think they would ever want to just give away Corbin Burns. Real quick, we have to stop. And I'm going to say this to Beningo when we do our Saturday show together. He's got to stop blaming the writers, the MLB writers, because when it was Hall of Fame players, when it was historians, when it was a general manager and an owner, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and Albert Bell still didn't even come close. Didn't even come close. And Fred McGriff, who was a very nice player, I don't mean to to rip Fred. To me, I'm a hard marker for the Hall of Fame. I don't put him in the Hall of Fame, but he had a very solid career. Was unanimous in the contemporary ballot. And so it shows you it's not just writers that vote based on who they like as humans and who they don't like as humans. Albert Bell got basically no votes. <laughs> the steroid guys, different story. So you can change the voters, yet the results remain the same. Crazy to me. Uh, I'm not mad about Fred McGriff getting in. I was mad about Harold Baines getting in. I'm not mad about Fred McGriff getting in. I just don't fully agree with it. And now I start to question if Bonds and Clemens ever get in. I always thought there was an eventuality with that. They would eventually get in. But now when you've got Hall of Famers on the ballot or Hall of Famers voting and they still got basically no votes. Yeah, I guess they'll never see the Hall of Fame. Same with Kurt Schilling, which is crazy to me. To me, that ballot featured four Hall of Famers. It featured Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, Albert Bell, and Kurt Schilling. And none of them got in, and it wasn't even close. All right, we will definitely have a couple of Ricos during the winter meetings. So no planned Ricos. No, we're going to break down this from Met history and that from Met history. It's going to be news. It's going to be reaction. It's going to be all the stuff you want. Anyhow, we appreciate you listening. You can email the podcast anytime you want, therecob at gmail.com. Craig and I all week at 2 o'clock on the fan. I'm sure we'll be talking a lot about this. Same with Pete as he'll be producing Tiki and Tierney. Thank you for listening to Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. <laughs>